invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans, chapter 8. We are continuing our series on uh, living in victory, going through Romans, chapter 8. The song that we sang, you'll, you'll kind of recognize it a little bit in the verses that we're reading. And so Romans, chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 31 through 34 today. So I invite you to stand, if you're able to, for the reading of God's Word. Romans, chapter 8. And the Bible says, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Indeed, he's, as the song we just sang, ever interceding. Praise God for that. We're going to be talking this morning about the simple truth that God is for us. God is for us. Again, just as a quick overview of what we've been talking about, uh, I, I actually, it's kind of interesting. I'm kind of doing a little bit of a, a general outline over the passages that we've been going at, and I'm starting to add more and more pages, it feels like, uh, but nonetheless, what a glorious uh, passage this is of Romans chapter 8. We began here actually several weeks ago now, beginning in verse 1 of Romans 8, and it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And really this passage here, the first couple of verses, really talks about our position in Christ, who we are in Christ, that we are, we are not condemned. By the way, Romans 8 starts with no condemnation, it ends with no separation from God. In the middle, there's no consternation. There's nothing, to, no frustration, really, as we rely on the Spirit. So praise God for our position who we are in Christ. That's done through the power of the Spirit. We then have freedom in Christ because of the Savior's sacrifice. That's verse 3. It enables us to, to live righteously. We live, of course, uh, by the, not of the flesh, but after the Spirit. And so this is uh, the, what our new mindset, our new track, if you will, is like that. We also have the battle of the mindsets, verses 5 through 8. And kind of the big picture there is there's a, there's a battle between the flesh. It's really between the, the believer and the non-believer. That's what those verses are talking about there. But really kind of practically, how do we look at that? We talked about really there's, uh, look at verse 8, for example. So they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are not believers cannot please God. Very simple, okay? But we see here that even in, in our Christian life is that there is just two choices on the shelf. What? Pleasing God or pleasing self, okay? That's very critical to understand that. Within that, how then do we battle that mindset? And that's through the assurance of the Spirit, having a spiritual mind. The key to living in victory is to have a spiritual mind that's simply submitted to Jesus Christ. That's the key to victory, have a spiritual mind that's submitted to Jesus Christ, basically saying, yes, Lord, uh, I will follow you, okay? Within it, that, our obligation then is to live in the Spirit. We are not obligated to live anymore after the flesh. Now that you're a believer in Christ, you're a Christian, I pray everyone here, by the way, has accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. They know Jesus Christ personally. What a blessing that is. But then how do we live that life? You are no um, under no obligation continuing the way you used to. Okay, you're no one, uh, no longer any obligation. Rather, you are to live after the Spirit to, and to mortify the flesh. Uh, with that, our calling is to be led by the Spirit as children of God, as really adopted sons. 
uh, into, into his family. With that comes all the privileges of heaven, okay? In addition to that, we are testimonies that we are loved by the Spirit. So we live in the Spirit, we're led by the Spirit, and we're loved by the Spirit. So that's the, that's the truth that we see here there, okay? And one thing that is important to understand this, that as we are loved by the Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit within us, gives us inner assurance of God's truth. What is that truth? That we are no longer under condemnation, that we do not live in condemnation. We are therefore now no condemnation. We are not condemned. Rather, we are justified. We are declared righteous. That is the point of that, okay? So the Spirit gives us the inner assurance of God's truth. So the Spirit works in your spirit, the, the, with our spirit, okay, that we are the children of God. We also talked about that there's a brighter day coming. Verse 18, this is important to understand. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And we talked about there's a brighter day coming for the believer, that the present sufferings of that we deal with, uh, and really throughout history, but the, even the ones that you are dealing with now, or that you have dealt with, or what you will deal with, all those are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to us. So in other words, there is a future glory. But here's the point, that the path to glory with Jesus is also the path of suffering with Jesus. Look at verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, with Christ, that we may be glorified together. So there is a point, there is a reason for the sufferings and trials that we do go through, okay? God doesn't waste suffering. We've talked about that before. But the question is this, is the road to future glory, God has promised a glorious future for the believer. Is the road to future glory, though, worth the present pain? Is the road to future glory worth the present pain? Absolutely, according to God's plan. How do we know that? Because it says, verses 20 through 25, talks about that creation is groaning, uh, literally standing on its tiptoes for a brighter day, for that glorious future that's waiting for that. Even so, the Christian is also groaning for a brighter day. But how do we have that? Oh, what keeps a Christian going through this life? What keeps you going? And that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit that's working in and through you. That Holy Spirit gives you hope and it gives you help. The Holy Spirit answers the needs that we have. That's God's plan. That's glorious in that regards. How do we know that? Because the Holy Spirit helps us with intercession, with groanings that cannot be uttered. And the groanings intercession is the confidence that nothing can separate us from God. Praise God for that. So with that, one day this groaning will give place to glory. So what do we do now? We're waiting for that glorious day. What do we now What's the will of God in our present groaning? And we looked at last week, we looked at Romans 8, 28. Many of you know it by heart. If you don't, I, I trust that you should. Okay, that's a good one. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. This is a beautiful verse. I like what R.A. Torrey said about this, that this verse, Romans 8, 28, is a soft pillow for a tired heart. Something that we can rest in. Rest in the promises of the Lord, that all things work together for good. God is sovereign. He's in control. This is God's operation, and he uses all things in cooperation for our good and for his glory. So what is the good? All things work together for good. Is that so we don't have a bad day? 
Is that what it's talking about? No, it's two things. It says here in verse 29, the first thing of the good there is that he did for no, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. So number one, the good that is, is, is for us, that we're all things were together for good, is number one, that you become Christ-like. You become like Christ. That's the first goal of that. All the things that are working in your life, that God allows in your life, is working, number one, for you to become more like Christ. And then number two, and that's what we see, there's a chain uh, that you find there in verses 29 through 30, whom he did for no, predestinate, he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. So the goal as well, that God works all things for good, that good is number one, that you become Christ-like, and then also that you would also be glorified. There is a brighter day coming. Praise God that this world that we live in is not the end of the story, folks. For a Christian, there is a brighter day coming. And that's with the, in the presence of our Lord. As we think, think about this, is this, that the greatest example of Romans 8.28 is the cross of Christ. That everything, you think of all the injustices that are in the world, the greatest injustice took place on the cross of Calvary. When Jesus, the innocent one, the Lamb of God, the innocent Lamb of God, who did nothing wrong, had no sin, no vile, nothing came out of his mouth wrong, but yet as an innocent God-man was put on the cross and died for each and every one of us for the sins which he did not commit, he died in our place. He died for you. And he also was buried and he rose again the third day. Talk about that's the greatest illustration, the greatest example of Romans 8.28. All things were together for good. Why? To become Christ-like and for his glory. Jesus Christ was glorified in that. So like I said, there's a chain of God's purpose. Understanding this, God, the sovereign God, knows us deeply. He sees the big picture in your life. We, the believers then, you know, with, with us having the, the, the promise of being glorified with Christ, sharing in that inheritance in heaven, there's something that's very important. We kind of ended last week's message with this, that the believer is assured then that he will not fall short of the glory of God. Remember Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, I'm sure of the glory of God in your sinful condition, folks, that's what you were destined for. You would fall short of the glory of God. You can never attain to God's standards. You can't be good enough. You can't pay enough money. We got a fridger offering here. You can't even give a, a thousand million dollars, whatever number you want to put out there and be good enough because we're doing it by our standards, not by God's standards, which is the ultimate standard. But in Christ, in our position in Christ, we are glorified and according to God's plan is as good as done. As we talked about earlier, the promises of God is as good as now. It's settled. Okay, praise God for that. But the believer is assured in that, in God's promise, that we will not fall short of the glory of God. Praise God for that. We are assured then that our present suffering is worth it as we await future glory. So this is, I mean, pretty much this whole passage of Romans 8 is really centered on this big thing of assurance. That's kind of the overall theme of this that a believer is assured in Christ, that you have you are not alone as a Christian. You have so many blessings and benefits. Sometimes when we talk about salvation, or maybe we witness to someone other, we talk about maybe being saved from your sins or being saved so you can get to heaven and all that, and those things are true. But folks, that is barely skimming the surface of everything that God has provided for us as a believer in Christ. And Romans 8 is a beautiful example. We've talked about before how that, the Bible, some people have alluded to it as a like a ring. And Romans is the diamond of the ring. And Romans 8 is the sparkle of the diamond of the ring. 
I love that illustration because it's so true. So my encouragement to you today is that we be assured of who we are in Christ, that we are not alone, that we are eternally secure as a believer in Christ, that our salvation is sure because not because of who we are. I mean, we waffle all day, okay? We're all over the place, spiritually, mentally, physically, everything. But in Christ, we are secure. All right, praise God for that. So now we're going to begin in this section here of Romans uh, 8, verses 31 through 34. And really the idea is a courtroom scene here. And so I want us to bring us to, this is kind of the courtroom of heaven, so to speak, that we're about to go into. But I want us to bring you to another courtroom. And that happened back in 1963. There was a decision called Gideon versus Wainwright. Anyone ever heard of that case? Gideon versus Wainwright. Some of you probably will pick up some pieces of those. This is a really interesting story. Back in 1961, a man by the name of Clarence Earl Gideon was accused of breaking into a bar in Panama City, Florida. The, uh, the police arrested Gideon and put him in jail. And at his trial, Gideon could not afford a lawyer and asked a judge to appoint one for him. The judge refused, and he had to represent himself in court. I don't know if you ever seen those folks that decide I'm going to represent myself in court. It usually doesn't work well. Okay, same thing here. Okay, the judge refused, so he had no one to represent him in court. Gideon had to represent himself. Eventually, Gideon was found guilty by a jury and then sentenced to five years in the Florida State Prison. In the prison library, he studied law, and then he sent a petition to the Florida Supreme Court claiming his Sixth Amendment right to legal counsel was violated. The court denied his position. And so, and kind of the reason of, well, I'll get to that in a second. The court denies position. So Gideon then wrote a five-page handwritten letter to the United States Supreme Court, which, number one, they read it. <laughs> That's a miracle. Number two, they actually agreed to hear his case and then determine whether the poor, whether poor defendants could be appointed a lawyer in state criminal trials. So, really interesting story. So, the decision happened in uh, the summer of, of 1963. Actually, yeah, March 18th was when this was uh, handed down. And the United States Supreme Court ruled unanimously in favor of Gideon, guaranteeing the right to legal counsel for criminal defendants in federal and state courts. So, what the without getting into the, the legality of it, basically, the reason why the judge and even the Florida Supreme Court says that a right to a... Uh, someone to represent you, a lawyer. Um, you think of the Miranda rights, for example, okay? Uh, anyways, that only applied to basically capital cases, like death penalty cases. And it was on the federal level, not on the state or civil le uh, level. So that's what was going on here before 1963. So in our, in our government, anyways. So with that in mind, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in favor, unanimously, guaranteeing his right to legal counsel for criminal defendants in federal and uh, state courts. Following decision, here's interesting, following that decision, about 2,000 inmates were let go because of that thing, but Gideon, Clarence Gideon, he ended up getting another trial. He got re a retrial on that, on his case back when he robbed that, or supposedly robbed the bar in, in Panama City. And so what happened was this, he was then given a, a court-appointed lawyer, a guy who actually volunteered, uh, his name is uh, Fred Turner. 
And uh, anyways, he actually did what a lawyer does, gets the case together, presents it, and brings it before the judge and the jury and and, uh, everyone there. And uh, anyways, the jury found him uh, not guilty of that of that charge. And so he walked away a free man. Now, by the way, this man was a, a poor, a, he was a drifter. He had all kinds of issues going on in his own life. Uh, he probably saw more time in jail than he did out time in the streets, but that's another topic for another story. But this particular case, he was originally denied a representative. He was denied a lawyer because he wasn't poor enough or it didn't sit, suit the situation. He had to defend himself. So here's an interesting case. By the way, that has affected us. Because of that, in the Sixth Amendment, the U.S. Supreme Court, and with the Fourteenth Amendment, basically it guaranteed the right for every citizen how to do a fair trial. What makes us in the United States have a fair trial is that we have a we have a, a, an option for a lawyer. We can have that one. If not, one will provide it for you with the, the uh, court-appointed uh, attorneys. Nonetheless, that's all legality. You can read up on that later. You can look at Gideon versus Wainwright if you really want to dig that out later. But uh, nonetheless, here's something really interesting that I kind of thought of is this, that in our sinful condition, we also have an accuser and a a prosecutor, if you will. He's known as the accuser of the brethren, and that's Satan. And he constantly comes before God and he says, look at this. He's a Christian. God, have you seen the things that he's done? Did he hear the things that he said? He, He puts this case against us. And you know what? If we were to defend ourselves in the court of heaven, and many people try to, we try to say, well, God, I was I really wasn't meaning to do that. We did, we try to put ourselves in all kinds of situations, but guess what? As with people today who don't have a lawyer, most of the time they're going to lose. Guess what? In the court of heaven, as a sinner, every time we're going to lose. And Satan's accusations, unfortunately, many of them are true. Okay? But he spins it. But what is the difference here? What is the difference? That all of a sudden, we with a case against us, it's a big case. The accuser questions our security in Christ. But with this case against us, how do we know that we are eternally secure in Christ? Who will come to our defense? We do have someone. That is our advocate, our lawyer, the lawyer of heaven, Jesus Christ. There's four reasons for that. How do we know that we will have a be secure in Christ and have our defense? Four reasons. Number one, God is for us. Verse 31, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? You know, Paul in his writings, especially in this passage right here in Romans, Paul likes to ask rhetorical questions. You know what that means, rhetorical questions? He basically, it has an obvious answer or really a no answer. These are rhetorical questions like you understand it. Is God for us? Nod your head, yes, of course he is, okay? That's the idea. Here's the thing. God is, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? God has shown himself to be for us by a couple of reasons we've looked at over the past few weeks. In Romans 15, uh, verse 15 of Romans 8, that he's adopted us as his sons. We've taken on his name. We are given his whole inheritance, all the privileges of heaven. That's been given to us. God is for us. He's also for us by granting us his spirit who lives within us, who helps us and gives us hope and intercedes for us. God is for us. And also he's gracious and that he has saved us. Praise God for that. For those whom did predestinate, he called, he justified those he justified, he glorified. 
This is talking about our, our security as a believer. God is for us. And here's another blessing to know. How is God for us? God is more mighty than all of our foes. He can defend and save us. The Bible says in Psalm 118, verse 6, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do unto me. So the question, who can be against us then? It's a rhetorical question. No one, okay? By the way, just because there is no one, uh, no one's against us does not mean that the believer has no enemies. Does the believer have enemies? Oh, yeah. If you haven't been paying attention, you're dealing with the world, the flesh, and of course, the accuser, the devil. Okay? We do have enemies, but here's the point. The question is, who can be against us? Is The point is this, that no enemy shall prevail against those in Christ. No enemy shall prevail against those in Christ. We have an advocate. We have an intercessor. We have our lawyer. We have our defense. Praise God for that. If we had to do it in our own strength, we would fail miserably. Okay? The next part of this, how do we know then that Christ will come to our defense? How do we know we're secure in Christ? Because God spared not his own son. Look at me in verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all these things? Beautiful passage right here. How do we know that God is for us? It's because he spared not his own son. Beautiful. The idea is that he spared not his own son. The, the idea of sparing, you could also say withheld. And that really brings us back to the story. Go back in your mind to the book of Genesis chapter 22, where you have Abraham and his son Isaac going to the land of Moriah, and he was going to offer his son as a burnt offering. And as Isaac was about, or me, as Isaac was laying on the altar, and Abraham was about ready to take that knife and to plunge that into the into the life of his son, what did the angel say? And he said, "Lay not thine hand upon the lad, the lad; neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld or spared thy son, thine only son, from me." Beautiful passage. I think that's what Paul is alluding here to in Romans 8. The image of Abraham and Isaac there on Mount Moriah. Here's one thought of this. We have no reason to fear that the Lord will not give us whatever is profitable to us, seeing he spare not his own son to save us. In other words, God will spare no expense to be there for you. That's the point. How do we know that God is for us? He spared not his own son. The Bible also says that he delivered him up for us all. The idea of delivering us up, this is not merely just merely to death, delivering up to death. We think of Jesus, gave, uh, God gave Jesus to die on the cross. This is not just death. That's kind of a narrow idea. But really, he surrendered him totally in the most comprehensive sense, just as we read in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, not just to die on the cross, but really to serve us, to be there for us, to be with us. Praise God for that. He delivered him up for us all. The idea for us all, that's referring to all believers. For us all. The most humble, I like what Albert Barnes says, commentator says, the most humble and obscure believer may derive consolation from the fact that Christ died for him and that God has expressed the highest love for him. You're probably thinking, man, I'm, I'm not much of a Christian. Or maybe I'm a new Christian. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just this. Why should God care for me? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love, as we say, as the hymn goes? 
Praise God, though, that Christ died for us. Romans 5, verse 8. And you know this verse, maybe you probably know it by heart. But God commendeth or demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. He died for us all. How do you know that God is for you? Because he spared not his own son. Man, my word. It's not on you to be saved, folks. So all what God has done, Christ has done. What we bring to salvation is our sin. Forgive me. Be merciful to be a sinner. As we think about this, the question is then, another rhetorical question, is how shall he not, verse 32, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? How shall he not? His giving of his son is proof that he will give us all things that we need. He has given us the greater gift and will not hold the less. He has given us such a great gift. Why is he, will he not give you lesser things as well? He gives us all things. All things needful, he will give freely. We sang that song, freely, freely. He give, His first great gift was his son. This was a free gift. All other things are also freely given. But we don't pay for it by money or by merit. But as we receive it by the mercy of God. You see, God's work in and through our lives from beginning to end, is all of grace. What a comfort that should be. What a comfort that should be. As we think about that, what's the privilege of a Christian then? The privilege of a Christian is a couple things. We have friendship with God. We are no longer enemies, but we are friends with God. We are favored with divine love. Next week, we're going to be talking about specifically the love of God, that nothing shall separate us from that. We're favored with divine love and also the assurance that he will that we will receive all the needs that we have. What is Philippians 4, 19? But my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. The big point in all this, God has given us all things through his son, Jesus Christ. God will not forsake his children, but will keep them to eternal life. Praise God for that. So again, how do we know that God is for us? Because number one, he spared not his own son. Number two, God justifies us. God justifies the book verse 33. Who shall lay any elect or anything, uh, excuse me, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. You see, as it says here, who shall lay anything to the charge? That a charge here, or who shall um, bring a charge against is the idea. A charge is what? A legal accusation. Satan is the prosecutor. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And his prosecution, though, according to God's plan, will fail. His prosecution against the believer will fail as God has chosen and justified us as his sons. No one can reverse God's verdict. We have been declared righteous. We have been declared innocent. Satan can throw anything at you. What is I, I, My mind keeps going back to Job. Remember, Job wanted to accuse Job of... Uh, of everything left and right. Have you considered my Job, how righteous he is? Okay, he was his own child. But God is our, he's our defendant. He is our attorney. He's with us. He's our advocate. And no matter what the prosecution, no matter what the accuser of the brethren is going to point at us, nothing will win. Nothing will succeed. Everything will fail. Why? Because God has declared you as his child righteous. He's declared you innocent. Because what? You are his. You are his. Pretty amazing. Where do we get this idea from? I'm, I'm going to read a couple verses from Isaiah 50. 
verses eight and nine. It says here, he is near, God is near that justifieth me. Who will contend for me? Who will be my advocate? Let us stand forget together. Who is mine adversary or my prosecutor? Let him come near me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Where are my accusers? Really, there's none compared to the glory that we have in Christ. That's security, folks. And how do we get that? How do we become justified? According to Romans 5, verse 9, we have been justified by his blood, by the blood of Christ, who paid the greatest price of all for our sins. And because that, we are brought into a relationship with him that is secure, and our glory is as good as now. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. So Satan really has no real power against us in God's great scheme of things. That's how we know all things work together for good. It's because of that great promise. So God justifies us. Folks, you are declared innocent. Now, does that mean, do we still sin and all that? Absolutely. But guess what? Our, our position in Christ is as we are his. We are with Christ. That's what's happening right there. Pretty amazing. But the third aspect of this, how do we know that God is for us? He spared not his own son. He justifies us. And then the third thing is Jesus intercedes for us. Look at me in verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? Another rhetorical question. Okay. Who is he that condemneth? Where's your accuser? It is, he, it is Christ that died, a rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. So who is he that condemneth? Where's your accuser? Where's the prosecutor in this case? Well, let me show you my defense attorney. Let me share with my attorney, all right? Satan, give us your best shot because you're not going to win. This is the idea. Who is he that condemns? This is what I like what A.T. Robertson says. It is a bold accuser who can face God with false charges or even with true ones for that matter. For we have an advocate at God's court. We have an advocate with God, Jesus Christ the righteous. If a man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous who is at the right hand, who makes intercession for us. Our advocate paid the debt for our sins with his blood. The score is settled and we are free. We are no longer under condemnation. We don't have the guilty verdict overhead anymore, folks. We are declared righteous. We are declared innocent. We are declared free, is that. So what a beautiful passage is this. Jesus Christ, who is our advocate, was also the same one who paid our debt for our sins with his blood. The score is settled. So here's some security of the no condemnation. How do we know we have no condemnation? It's based on these, these four truths. Number one, Christ died. It is Christ that died. Or here's another way to word it. Shall Christ who has died condemn them? Will Jesus condemn us? No, he's for us, is the idea. The argument here is that as Christ died to save us, he will not destroy us. He will not condemn us. His death for us as believers is his security that he will not condemn them. As he died to save them, and as they have actually embraced the salvation, there's the highest security that he will not condemn them. And this is what Barnes says. So in other words, this is a high security. If you want assurance of who we are in Christ, Jesus died for you. If you want to know if God is for us, how do you know it? Jesus died for you. Believe that. Embrace that. And Jesus will not condemn you. Jesus is the judge of all the earth who has all power to condemn anyone he wishes. 
because of the sin. But in Christ, you are his and you will be no longer under condemnation. Praise God for that. The other fact is this, that Christ is risen again. A key aspect in the gospel, I'm glad Woody, you quoted that earlier as well, that our gospel is incomplete without the resurrection. The fact that Jesus, yes, died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again. That secures us as believers in him. Christ is risen again. We are secure because of his work. Romans 4.25 says, Jesus, who was delivered for our offenses, our sins, was raised again for our justification to declare us righteous. That happened because Jesus rose from the dead. Folks, when you share the gospel with someone, don't leave out the resurrection. That's a key part of it. Very key part of it. Okay? The next part is this, that Jesus is, he's Christ at the right hand of God. You see that in many different places in the scriptures, but this is important. What does it mean that Jesus is at the right hand of God? It means that he's enclosed with power, and he's exalted to honor, and he is the head of all things. Remember when Jesus gave the great commission to the disciples and, of course, to us as well. He begins this way in, Rome, in Matthew 28, that all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. He has given that power to rule over all things, as it says in Ephesians 1. The believer then is under the protection of Christ, who is over all things. He's, we are under the protection of Christ, and we are secure from being condemned in him. We are no longer condemned, folks, and we are no longer separate. Right now, there's no frustration either. Praise God for that. And the last thing is, how do we know that we are secure from no condemnation from that sentence? It's because the very last part of verse 34, he makes intercession for us. By the way, we talked about this the other week, that who does this as well? The Holy Spirit. Verse 26 says, Likewise, our spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, for the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Even as the Spirit comes to our defense and intercedes for us, Jesus Christ does the same thing. Folks, that's, just a, that's a beautiful picture right there of what our security in Christ. Jesus pleads our cause. He aids us and assists us. He presents our interest before the mercy seat of heaven. For this purpose, he ascended into heaven. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says, Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Jesus, as our high priest, as our intercessor, as our advocate, is there speaking on our behalf. Just as Clarence uh, Gideon was wanting someone to speak on his behalf and couldn't find one, couldn't get justice, guess what? We have a secure advocate who will speak for us, even with groanings that cannot be uttered. Praise God for that assurance that we have. You see, through the Savior's intercession for us, we remain in God's love. We are secure in the love of Christ that nothing can separate us from. And we'll get to that topic next week in that beautiful way to finish out this chapter. But as we think about this, all these four truths, that Christ died, is risen again, he sits at the right hand of God, and makes intercession for us. These four truths in this, we are completely secure from condemnation. Having Jesus as the judge of all, as our friend, we are safe. It's one thing, this is beautiful. Our, the Satan comes in, the prosecution comes, basically gets his whole laundry list against, man, look at this person. Look at, he calls himself a Christian. And guess what? Let me introduce you to my lawyer, is Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is our Lord. And by the way, he gets up and he also goes to the bench because what? He's also our judge and he has the final say. And guess what? We are walked out from death to life. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. As we think about this, we are secure in Christ because God is for us. He spared not his own son. He has justified us and now Jesus intercedes for us. What great assurance we have in Christ. You see, the blessing of our standing in Christ helps us to rest in the love of Christ that nothing can separate us from. What a God we serve. What an advocate that we have. Praise God because God is for us. Now, for a Christian, that should just thrill our hearts that we are secure in Christ. Let me challenge you. Maybe you're here today. You do not know Jesus Christ because if you're on the other side of this, you don't have an advocate. You don't have anyone to defend you. And guess what? Your case is going to be lost easily. But as, well, this is the thing. Jesus Christ came to this world to die for you. He was buried and he rose again for you. Why? Simply because he loves you. God so loved the world. Put your name in that. You're in the world, I hope. Last we checked, right? Unless you went on that space mission uh, to the moon with the Indians for whatever matter. But anyways, as you think about that, Jesus Christ died for you. And he asks everyone, who shall ever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But folks, if you're in your sin, if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, guess what? You don't have a defense attorney. You don't have anyone standing with you. By trusting in Jesus Christ for what he has done for you on the cross, taking your sins away, guess what? He gives you assurance that you are his. And guess what? He is your lawyer and nothing can defeat him. Case closed. Praise God for that. God is for us.